Good morning, church. Would you join me in turning to the book of Habakkuk, found in the Old Testament? Uh, just three chapters, so I'll give you a couple seconds to turn there. Um, I'm sure many of you know exactly where it is, but go ahead and turn there. It's right after the book of Nahum, and we're going to be starting this morning, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We'll be looking at uh, chapter 1, 1 through 11 this week, and then we'll be continuing on for the next couple weeks through Habakkuk. So would you read with me Habakkuk chapter 1? Verses 1 through 11. Here's what it says. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Let's pray. Almighty and gracious Father, since our whole salvation stands in our knowledge of your holy word, Strengthen us now. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit from your word. That our hearts may be set free from, from all of our worldly thoughts and attachments that we have to the flesh. So that we may hear and receive your word. So that we may recognize your gracious will for us. So that we may know more and more of who you truly are so that we may love and serve you with delight, praising and glorifying you in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The God of the Bible does not exist. At least, that's what some people say. And you can be sure of this. How? Well, because evil exists in the world. The argument is pretty simple and here's how it's laid out. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipotent or all powerful. The Bible teaches us that God is omniscient, all knowing he knows and sees everything. The Bible teaches us that God is infinitely and perfectly good. All knowing, all powerful, infinitely good. And yet, evil exists in this world. Suffering exists in this world. Both natural and moral evil. In other words, there's evil like natural disasters, and there's moral evil that humans commit. And there's lots of it. So the question is, if, if God is omniscient, all-knowing, then he knows about all of this. He sees all of it. And he knows how to stop it. He knows how to eliminate it. He knows how to prevent it. If God is omnipotent, all powerful, then he is able to prevent it. He is able to eliminate it. And if God is good, if God is infinitely good, then he would want to prevent and eliminate all evil. And yet, 
evil and suffering clearly exist in our world. Therefore, the argument goes, if God exists, he is either not all-powerful, not all-knowing, or not good. Since the Bible claims that God is all of these, then clearly the God of the Bible does not exist. That is how the problem is laid out. Problem solved, case closed, period, end of story. Checkmate, you dumb Christians. The Bible's wrong. Christians are stupid. Anyone who thinks about it can know that the God of the Bible does not exist. Now, this is called by philosophers, the logical problem of evil. Now, it has been refuted by many Christian philosophers in many different ways, some better than others. But, but the logical problem of evil is not our focus this morning, although it is relevant to what we'll be talking about over the next three weeks. But the, the reason it's, it's only slightly relevant is because the existence of evil for most of us who are not philosophers does not pose primarily a logical problem, but more of an emotional problem. How, how can the God of the Bible exist when there is so much pain and suffering, so much injustice in the world? It just, it causes us emotional confusion. If Jesus is on the throne, then why are Christians still being martyred every day across the world? Why hasn't God dealt with disease and sickness and pandemics? Why does God allow these things to happen? If God exists, then why hasn't he answered my prayers for healing? Why do the guilty go free sometimes and the innocent remain behind bars, wars, famines, pandemic, pandemics, and many more things ravage this planet? Where is God amidst all of this evil? Where is God's goodness? Where is God's righteous justice? Where is God's judgment? Now, this question, these, these ideas are posed many places in the Bible. And that in and of itself should give you some comfort. God is not ignorant to our questions. God is not ignorant to the way that, that this looks to us. The Bible addresses this in many places, in Job, in the Psalms, some places in the New Testament, 2 Peter, Revelation. But there is one man in the Bible who asks these types of questions in a unique way and receives a direct answer from God himself. And so looking at this conversation will reveal some things to us about the nature of God and how he works in our world. And we'll answer these questions in a form or fashion. Now, this man is the prophet Habakkuk. Now, you can call him whatever you want. You could say Habakkuk, Habakkuk, tomato, tomato. You, I don't even care. I'm probably saying it wrong, but that's just how I'm going to keep saying it because it's a, if I try something else, I'm so used to it by now, it'll be hopeless. Habakkuk. So Habakkuk has similar questions to these, and he takes them directly to God, and God answers him. Now, what questions does Habakkuk have? And what is God's answer? This is what we'll be exploring together over the next three weeks. And, and through the study, by God's grace, we will gain Holy Spirit-inspired insight into how God works in history, why God sometimes seems silent, the nature of God's sovereignty and justice, and in light of all this, how we are to live during difficult, confusing, and painful times. So, so let's begin. Let's Let's dig into the first chapter here. Look at verse one, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet saw. That's the only introduction we get. That's all that we're told in all of scripture about Habakkuk, that he was a prophet and that he saw an oracle. This is what prophets did back in the days of ancient Israel. They delivered messages from God to his people. Prophets saw visions and oracles from God and then delivered them to the people. Prophets were the mouthpiece of God to his people. But, but Habakkuk is not like the other prophetic writings that we have contained in the Old Testament. Habakkuk is, is unique. Most of the prophets receive a message or a vision from God 
and then deliver it to the people. But, but Habakkuk speaks to God from the people, receives an answer, and then delivers the whole conversation to the people. Habakkuk wrestles with God in prayer and at God's orders, writes the whole thing down and then delivers it to the people. So, so that's the who it's, it's the prophet Habakkuk and, and it's the, what this is his Oracle that he saw. It's his vision. But what about the, when now, if you look at verse one, you'll see that there's no date. There's, there's, there's a date in some of the prophets. Isaiah, for example, uh, prophesies, he says, in the year King Uzziah died. And so we can look back at the history and figure out exactly when Isaiah was prophesying. But Habakkuk doesn't give us any clues, at least explicitly. Now, this is kind of a problem because, you see, when you're reading the prophets, especially shorter books, the context in which they are prophesying is, is really important to understanding them. The prophets, Habakkuk included, were prophets in specific times through Israel's history, and they played important roles in that history. So to understand what he's saying and the references that he's making, you have to know when to place them in the timeline, at least generally. But Habakkuk doesn't tell us. But in God's providence, God has given us his entire word, and so we can piece together what is going on in Habakkuk's day by clues that we find in his text. And this is important. It makes sense, right? It wouldn't do much good reading the speeches of Winston Churchill if you didn't understand anything about British history in the 20th century or about World War II. You wouldn't get much out of it. You wouldn't really know what he's referencing or what he's talking about. The same is true for Habakkuk. If you think he's talking about Israel when they're in slavery in Egypt, you're going to misunderstand almost everything he says. So let's, let's have a, a two-minute rundown. So this is my two-minute rundown of Israel's history from Egypt to Habakkuk's day. Okay, you ready? So everyone knows Israel's enslaved in Egypt for more than 30 years. You don't even have to read the Bible. You could just watch the movie, Prince of Egypt, Disney. Thank you. Great music, by the way. So Israel's in Egypt for 430 years enslaved. God miraculously leads them out of Egypt through Moses. They receive the law at Mount Sinai. They wander in the desert for 40 years, complaining to God. The complaining generation dies. So that's basically Exodus numbers, Leviticus. God renews his covenant with the people of Israel, the new generation. Moses dies. Joshua leads them into the promised land. That's where you get the walls of Jericho and all that different stuff. They take over the promised land. Then these 12 tribes, which were the 12 sons of Jacob, uh, divide up the land of Israel between the 12 tribes. And so they separate out. You have the land of all the 12 tribes. Then you have the book of Judges. God puts judges over his people, which kind of function like rulers. But the people reject God. They turn to their own devices. They decide what's right in their own eyes. As the book of Judges famously tells us, chaos reigns in the land of Israel. The people sin, and so God judges them. Then the people cry out to God, please deliver us, and God delivers them. And you get this cycle in the book of Judges. That, that happens about 12 times. Eventually, the people beg God for a king. They say, hey, every other nation around us has a king. We want a king. God says, I'm your king. If you have a king, it's not going to go well for you. They say, we don't care. We want a king. So God gives them a king. First king is King Saul. He's okay for a while, and then he becomes wicked. Eventually, God removes him, and he's replaced by King David. Now, God makes a covenant with David that the Messiah, the deliverer, the redeemer will come through his bloodline and will one day sit on the throne of Israel forever. David reigns for a long time, doing a lot of good things and a lot of bad things. And eventually he dies. Now, David's son, Solomon, ascends the throne and Solomon's the, the famous wise man of the Bible. He writes the Proverbs and things like that. Now, Solomon's reign is pretty much the peak of Israel's history. Solomon expands the kingdom bigger than when David had it. Solomon, under Solomon, Israel prospers. They become wealthy and everyone is, is, uh, has an abundance of what they need. 
Things are good. This, this is the golden days. But eventually Solomon sins as well. He dies and his son takes over. Now his son's a fool. And his son, instead of listening to the wise counsel of the elders, listens to his other young, dumb friends. And essentially what happens is Israel, the kingdom of Israel. So there's 12 tribes, kind of a united federation of 12 tribes. The 10 northern tribes split off and form their own kingdom. Now they're known, the 10 northern tribes are known as either the northern kingdom or as Israel. The southern tribes are known as Judah. And if you read first and second Kings, basically what you see is an account of all the different Kings that ruled over these, these two nations. Every King of the Northern tribe is wicked. They practice idolatry. They set up idols to bow down to. They sacrifice their children. They commit thousands and thousands of times of sexual immorality. They reject God. And so God wipes them out. They're utterly destroyed by the empire of Assyria. Completely wiped out. Judah, the southern kingdom, is a little more righteous. They have some good kings who are like David, but they don't fare too well either. In fact, things get really bad. Things get so bad that, that God raises up this king, Josiah, and, and things were so bad during his time that they had literally lost the law. They had forgotten that the, their version of the Bible at that time even existed. And so Josiah finds it one day in the temple and he, he reinstitutes everything. He, there's this giant renewal in Judah. He brings back the word of God. He, he restores the temple that was in ruin from being under disuse. And so there's this glimmer of hope. King Josiah is on the throne. The people are coming back to God. God's law has once again been going out to his people. Israel has been reformed. Looks like the path to Messiah is coming. Things are good once again. Josiah goes through the land, destroying all the idols. But then Josiah is killed in battle. And his son Jehoiakim is placed on the throne. And Jeho Jehoiakim is 10 times worse than any king that Judah has ever had. Israel once again plunges into wickedness because of her wicked rulers. And at this same time, in the north, above Israel, a new empire is on the rise. The empire of Assyria, which were kind of the bad boys of the time, is starting to wane. The empire of the Babylonians, or as Habakkuk calls them, the Chaldeans, is on the rise. And during this time, they have just successfully wiped out the Assyrian empire. The same one that had a hundred years earlier destroyed the Northern kingdom of Israel. So this is the period in which Habakkuk prophesies. The Northern kingdom is destroyed. They've been judged. Babylon or the Chaldeans are roaming around in the North. There's a wicked, wicked King on the throne in Israel who has instituted and put in place wicked rulers in the kingdom. Probably our best guess is the year around 609 BC. That's the context. So that's the scene onto which we walk in Habakkuk. So, so let's look at the text now that we've kind of got the picture in our mind of what is going on, what the current events are of the day. And we're going to break this up into two parts. It's simple. The first verse two through four is Habakkuk's complaint. And then verses five through 11 is God's answer. So let's look at Habakkuk's complaint. Chapter one, verse two through four. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are ever before me. Strife and contention arise so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Immediately upon reading these words, you, you, you can feel Habakkuk's frustration. You can, 
You can feel his confusion. How long, O Lord? This is not the first time Habakkuk's prayed this prayer. He's been praying it for a long time. He's been praying that God would do something. God, rescue us. Deliver your people from these wicked rulers. You've done it before. Why aren't you doing it now? Habakkuk feels like God has turned his back on him, on his people. God has turned a deaf ear to his people. Why do you make me look at iniquity? This is, this is, not, this is not a nice, quiet prayer. This is not a, a formality. This is not a, oh, Father, please help us in our time of need. Amen. This is a cry. Look at the language. How long shall I cry for help? This is a shout. He's not crying. God, there's some things going on. He's saying there's violence, Lord, violence. How long do I have to keep saying this? Why aren't you listening? Why don't you hear? Why aren't you doing anything? This is a prayer soaked in frustration and confusion and bathed in tears. Dripping with emotion. He's been crying out to God continually for a long time and has received nothing in return. Justice goes forth perverted in God's own nation. The law is paralyzed. God's law is paralyzed. Habakkuk has been crying out to God for help and he's received nothing. He doesn't understand. Look, look at the language. I mean, Habakkuk is, is bordering on accusing God of being unjust. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? God, why are you just sitting there? Do something. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. The law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. God, surely you see the evil that's going on in Judah right now. Why are you sitting on the sidelines? Do something. Deliver us. Your law is numb. It's useless right now. Justice is perverted among the only people who possess God's law. We're we're no better than a pagan nation and you're not doing anything. The righteous ones, the ones who actually believe in you are suffering And the wicked ones who flout your law and reject you are prospering in your nation. Where are you, God? Don't you see that your very reputation and name is at stake here? But his prayers have have seemingly fallen on deaf ears. So Habakkuk is frustrated. He's confused. He doesn't understand why God isn't doing anything. And he has every right to be. I mean, again, this is, this is God's people. Judah, God's people is infected with wicked, wicked rulers. The King Jehoiakim has no concern for justice or mercy. There's widespread oppression throughout the land. God hates oppression. So why is he letting it go on? In other words, Habakkuk is not just being dramatic. Things were awful. The prophet Jeremiah, who who prophesies about the same time as Habakkuk, writes a lot about Jehoiakim. One of the things that Jeremiah says about Jehoiakim is this in Jeremiah 22, 17. He says, you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood and for practicing oppression and violence. That's bad. This is the king of God's people. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 36, God sends a prophet named Uriah to rebuke Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim kills him himself. It's the only king that we have in scriptures who kills one of God's prophet himself. At one point, 
the Lord speaks through Jeremiah and tells Jeremiah, write down this prophecy. Here are my words and then deliver them to Jehoiakim. So <laughs> Jeremiah does this. L- listen to Jeremiah chapter 36, one through three. Here's what Jehoiakim does with the words of God that Jeremiah delivers and delivers to him. He comes to Jehoiakim. This is what God has to say to you. Listen to what Jehoiakim does. Jeremiah 36, one through three. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So, so that's word. That's the Lord's word to Jeremiah. They bring that scroll to Jehoiakim and he says, okay, yeah, read it aloud to me. They read it aloud and he goes, that's nice. Cuts it up and throws it in the fire. No respect for God. Nothing. This is one bad dude. And this is the king of God's people. Why has God allowed this? That's Habakkuk's question. Lord, why don't you do something? You could put a better king in place. That's Habakkuk's problem. That's his complaint. And he's not shy about it. He lays it all out before God. He honestly expresses his pain, his confusion, his frustration in this prayer. And in, we can assume in many other prayers that he had been praying before this. Now, brothers and sisters, faithful, godly people can be confused and frustrated by God's plans. Not understanding what God is doing or why does not mean that you necessarily lack faith or love for God. Love for God does not exclude this type of confusion. Doesn't exclude this type of questioning. Again, we see this throughout scripture. There is a way to take your fears, your frustrations, your confusions, your pain and your doubt to God in faith. Habakkuk models that for us. He gives us a, a uh, framework. He gives us permission to do that this morning. Habakkuk doesn't accuse God. But he does ask him why he wants to understand. And right now he doesn't. So, so there's a way to do this. But before I talk about that, there's also a way to do this. That's not of faith. There's a way to come to God. That's a lack of faith. So there's, there's a way of belief and a way of unbelief to question God. The way of unbelief sounds more like this. God, why aren't you giving me what I want? Are you even real? If you were real, you would do this for me. Or if you were real, you would never let this happen to me. You see the way of unbelief questions God, but expresses it in bitter grumbling. A woe is me attitude. The the way of unbelief questions God because God doesn't give you what you want. The way of unbelief questions God when your own life gets uncomfortable. The way of unbelief questions God when God just doesn't do things the way you think he should. The way of unbelief is self-focused. It's selfish in its desire for fulfillment. We see many examples of this in the scripture. Think of the Israelites in the wilderness. God had freed them from slavery. And because they didn't get the kind of food that they wanted, they start complaining. God, if you're not going to feed us, just, just send us back to Egypt. We were better off there in slavery. That's the way of unbelief concerned about what to eat. And they had just received a miraculous deliverance. That's not what Habakkuk is doing. Look about what he's complaining about. Righteousness, justice, oppression, violence. See Habakkuk is concerned and complaining about the very things that God is concerned and complaining not complaining, but concerned about. See, Habakkuk questions God because of his belief, because of his faith. Not out of a lack of faith. Habakkuk questions God because of his faith. Look at what he's saying. See, Habakkuk knew and believed God. 
Habakkuk believed that God was who he said he was. And so that's why he questions him. Habakkuk says, God, you're the one that has told us that you're righteous. You have told us that you're all powerful. You have told us that you're just. And I believe that. So then why can't I see that right now? He says, I know that you see everything. I'm not doubting that. I know that you're good. I'm not doubting that. I know that you're just. I'm not doubting that. But then why aren't you doing anything? See, Habakkuk questions God because he longed for righteousness and justice. The very things that are near and dear to God's heart. He longed for the oppression of the weak to cease. He longed for God's name to be glorified among his people. So that's why he questions God. He longed for God's law to be restored and, and for righteousness to be done in God's nation. Habakkuk looked at what God had promised in his word, saw it not fulfilled and said, Lord, why are you not acting according to your own promises? That's what I don't understand. He says, Father, I, I, see, I know that you're just. Why, why can't I see your justice? Why are you letting injustice escape your judgment? Lord, I know that you hate sin. So, so why are you tolerating it amongst your people? You see, Habakkuk questioned because of his faith, because of his belief in God. Not because he lacked faith, not because of a lack of faith. You, you see the difference. The way of unbelief is concerned with personal circumstances, security, comfort. The way of faith is concerned with God's glory, with the things that God's concerned about. The way of faith is ultimately concerned with God's reputation. Habakkuk looked among the people of Judah and saw endless amounts of sin, wickedness, oppression, violence, and idolatry. He took this to God in prayer continually. How long do I have to keep praying this God before you will Deliver us. He was honest with God in prayer. Why? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why aren't you doing anything? He was reverent, but he was bold in his prayers. He was persistent in his prayers. Even though he didn't see anything happening, he continued to pray for justice. I want to encourage you again. There's nothing wrong with this kind of prayer. This type of praying occurs all over the Bible. Just, just read the Psalms and you'll see it. But as I was reflecting and and meditating on this test, I I had to ask myself this question. Do, Do I pray like this? Do you pray like this? Do we labor over the injustices that we see in the world in prayer? Do we labor over the injustices that we see in the church in prayer? Do we labor over the sin that we see in the worldwide church in prayer? We heard last week from the book of Jude that false teachers had crept into that church and that false teachers will continue to creep into churches all over the world until Jesus comes back. Do we labor over that in prayer? Do you bring your pain, confusion, frustration honestly to God in prayer? Or do you just bottle it up and say, ah, God doesn't want to hear that? Now, I think there are many reasons that we may not pray like this. I think often it's just out of apathy. Sometimes maybe a lack of faith. Maybe it's just a lack of concern for the glory of God. And we, we pretend it's, it's because we have faith. I trust God to do whatever he's going to do. It's fine. I've been guilty myself of that mindset. But that's not the biblical example. Habakkuk knew God was sovereign. Habakkuk knew God was just. But he brought his frustration to God in prayer because he knew that God worked through prayer. Habakkuk was not led away from prayer by his faith. But rather, his faith led him to God in prayer. His faith led him to question God in prayer. His faith led him to a holy boldness and honesty with God in prayer. Brothers and sisters, God can handle your questions. God can handle your pain. He can handle your frustration. Bring it to him in faith. 
Pray with boldness, pray with faith, pray with persistence. Don't just read the headline in the newspaper and go, geez, this is an awful world and turn your back. Pray that God would bring justice. Habakkuk was frustrated because God was seemingly unresponsive to his prayers. But he continued to pray. He had prayed and prayed and prayed. And yet God was seemingly silent to his cries for help. But in verse five, God finally answers. And it's not what Habakkuk wanted. You see, Habakkuk was probably wanting something like, don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm raising up a new king. He's going to set everything right in Judah. The Messiah is coming soon. Just, just hold tight for a couple weeks and, and everything will be good. That's basically what God did in the days of the judges. I'll just wipe out all the wicked people and all the righteous people can prosper. And Israel can be the number one nation again. That's not what God's up to. That's not God's answer. Look at, look at God's answer in verse five. Look how he starts it. Look among the nations and see wonder and be astounded for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if told. In other words, Habakkuk, you might want to sit down for what I'm about to tell you. I'm about to reveal to you what I have been doing. And it's going to seem unbelievable, unimaginable. You won't believe it. It's going to astonish you. You're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. So what is God doing that is so unbelievable and unimaginable? Verse six, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings, they scoff. At rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their own God. God is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonian empire to come and assault and destroy Judah. The Lord is raising up. You'll notice he uses the same words Habakkuk uses in his complaint. Habakkuk says, God, there's violence. There's, there's injustice. God says, I'm raising up a violent an unjust empire. They're wicked. They're God hating. They're self glorifying a pagan nation to do what? To lay siege to the Jerusalem, the holy city of God. In fact, in about 20 years from when Habakkuk is writing, this happens. The Chaldeans march into Jerusalem, take God's people captive and destroy the temple. Why are they there? God tells us in verse five, Verse six, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is God's answer to Habakkuk. God had heard Habakkuk's prayers this whole time. God had already been responding to them, even though Habakkuk couldn't see it. God had not been overlooking the injustice. God had not been overlooking the violence. God had not been overlooking the sin in Judah. He saw all of it and he was doing something about it. God's judgment is going to fall hard upon Jerusalem because his people have rejected him because they have flouted his law. How do you feel about that? I mean, on one hand, It's awesome, right? God had heard his prayer the whole time. So even though Habakkuk didn't realize that God had heard him and been doing things, God had been at work the whole time. So that's encouraging. He's dealing with all of the problems that Habakkuk had complained about. 
And he says the solution's coming. But on the other hand, I, I mean, in some sense, the cure is worse than the disease. And, and we'll continue more on that theme next week. I am raising up the Chaldeans. God is going to use a violent, wicked nation. God's raising them up. What? I mean, that is strong language. He's not saying, oh, the Chaldeans are coming and I'm just going to let them kind of come in. I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. And, and this description tells us that God is not ignorant to how bad they are. He says, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Is God allowed to do that? Does that strike you as strange? He is. God works this way all throughout scripture. Now, if you're thrown off by that, maybe it's the first time you've, you've seen that in the text. Maybe, maybe you go, I, I understand intellectually that that's what the Bible says, but, but how does that work? How, how does that work with God's justice? Definitely stay tuned because we'll deal with those issues over the next couple of weeks. Because here's the thing. Habakkuk is just as confused as you are by God's answer and just as upset as you might be. But listen, God is in complete control of the nations at all times. He does what he pleases in the earth. He does not bow to our judgment. God sets up Kings. God establishes nations and destroys them. This is God's world. God is in complete control for his own glory and the good of his people. All of the, the scriptures testify to this all over the place, but I want to just show you some examples so you can see it. Daniel 2, 20 to 21 says this, blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes Kings and sets up Kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He's the one that puts someone on the throne and takes them off. Job 12, 23. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. Proverbs 21, verse one. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God is in control. And then listen to this description of how God uses another pagan king in scripture. Ezra chapter one, verse one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Listen to this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. The Lord stirred up his heart to do his will. How can God work like this? Because he's God. Because he is doing something. He has a plan. He is doing something marvelous and wonderful amongst the nations. Well, what is he doing? Habakkuk didn't have the full picture that we have now. See, from Genesis to Malachi, God is preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. God is preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. The timing of every part of God's plan is perfect. Brothers and sisters, Habakkuk lived long before Christ walked the earth, but we live long after. We have seen the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness and love for his people in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, this should bring us comfort. A God who is not in control like this can't help anyone. What good is a God to comfort you who has no control over things? No. See, there is still violence, injustice, and wickedness upon the earth. But Christ is king. And a day is coming 
when all sin, all injustice, and all wickedness will be judged. Just like in Habakkuk's day, God sees everything that goes on now, and he is not inactive. No sin escapes the eye of God. He will set everything right. True eternal justice will be dealt out for every terrible deed that has been committed from the beginning of time to the end on a national level and on a personal level. No one will sidestep God's justice. No one, not the Chaldeans, not the Assyrians, not Israel, not murderers, not rapists, not thieves. No one escapes God's justice. All will come before the judgment seat of Christ, the King. And in time, we, those who have faith in him, will see the beauty and the wisdom of God's great plan of redemption. But the truth is, the truth is, while that will bring comfort to some, it should make others tremble. Because we are all guilty before God. You see, we, we have all fallen short of his glory. All have fallen sin and, fall, and, and fallen short of the glory of God. Friend, the only solution is faith in Christ Jesus. God in his great love and mercy has provided for us in his son, not only a perfect king, but a perfect savior. Forgiveness of sins is provided to us in Christ Jesus by faith. We can receive mercy instead of the justice that we so deserve in Christ Jesus by faith. In his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ bore the full penalty for sin for all who would call upon him by faith. Complete forgiveness for all your sin will be yours if you place your faith in Christ Jesus and receive him as Savior and Lord. This is exactly what Paul talks about in Acts 13 that we read earlier. And I don't know if you notice because Paul doesn't say it explicitly, but at the end of his gospel presentation, Paul quotes Habakkuk 1.5. Now it's from the Septuagint, so the word, wording is a little different. But listen to what he says. So Paul is presenting the gospel to the Jews. He says this in, in verse 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, so he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. In other words, he didn't rise again. He just died in his body, decomposed. But he, Jesus Christ, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. His body didn't compose. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law condemns Christ sets you free. Beware, therefore. So that's the gospel. There is forgiveness of sins for any who will trust in Christ. But then Paul gives this warning in the words of Habakkuk. Beware, though. Beware. Watch out. Lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days. A work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. Friend, heed the warning of Habakkuk through the mouth of the Apostle Paul. Christ has died. Christ has risen, but you must have faith in him to receive forgiveness of sins, to escape the justice that you deserve. Don't be among those who perish because of unbelief. Don't be among those who look at the crucified and risen son of God and say, that's unbelievable. You see, the problem of evil presented at the beginning isn't a problem at all. God is all powerful. God is all knowing, all seeing, and God is infinitely good. 
And one day, in his perfect timing, all evil, all wickedness will be judged and eradicated forever. He has told us this, and he will fulfill it. The death and resurrection of Christ is our seal of that promise. Take comfort in that this morning. When you read the headlines, when you see the things that happen in this world, God is at work, even if you can't see it. And he will eradicate all injustice, all evil, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's ISIS. So what's our response? Pray, pray with passion. Pray with boldness, pray with honesty, pray with expectancy, pray your questions to God. Christian, the God who rules and controls the nations is with you. Your God is faithful. He hears you and he is active already answering your prayers. Even if you can't see or feel it, you can be short of that. He knows what you need before it even comes out of your mouth. Continue steadfastly in prayer. I want to close with the words of Romans eight, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Let's pray. Heavenly father, We've seen in your word great truths. The mystery of your providence, the glory of your sovereignty. Lord, you know, you know that sometimes it confuses us because we see in your word many of your faithful people who have frustrations and questions. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that you are a God who understands. We thank you that we have a faithful and great high priest, Jesus Christ. Who's compassionate towards us in our frustrations and confusions. And Lord, we thank you that we can come to you in prayer with boldness, with honesty. And you receive us like a father and his children. Lord. Just wake us up to take advantage of that. And father reassure our hearts when we're confused, reassure our hearts when we're frustrated. Would you comfort us with the knowledge that you are at work, that you hear us even when we can't see or feel it, especially during this time, father pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.